This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I grew up not far from here, relatively speaking. Um, although, you know, again, I don't know. For a lot of you people, the D.C. area, you might look at New Jersey with a certain amount of contempt. But New Jersey, it's the East Coast, such as it is. Um, but I've spent the last eight years in the Midwest. Um, part of tonight's talk grows out of my own confrontation between the disparate cultures of the East Coast and Midwest as manifested especially in their popular approaches to literature. That's my informal way of saying the reactions I get in class from students based upon where they're from. In addition to my day job as a professor teaching courses in the great books in Greek and Latin, I also moonlight. Actually, I don't moonlight because I don't earn anything for this. This is a purely voluntary thing. I volunteer as a member of the editorial board for a Catholic literary magazine called Dappled Things. So in that capacity, I, along with our whole team of editors, some more than others, probably them more than me, um, do the heavy task of sifting through many entries each month of what young Catholic authors deem to be the next great thing in Catholic literature. So no one submitted there yet? Not secretly, like no one's like here specifically about the rejected manuscript. Okay, good. Just being sure. That, that's for after the talk. It's for after the talk. Are you going to pull me aside and show me? So I got, I got this novel I've been working on, man. Can you read it before you go and you fly out? Uh, love that. Um, I will read that, certainly. Okay. So in that capacity as editor, I think I can speak with some experience and authority that there is a great deal of difference between um, Catholic literature of the 14th century. So again, that's kind of spanning the, the big difference here between the, the death of Dante in the early 14th century and uh, the, the end of Chaucer at the end of the 14th century. There's a great deal of difference, though, between Catholic literature that we find in the 14th century and its exuberance in its crassness and sublimity from the literature that I find in the Catholic world today. Um, even between the Catholic world of the early 20th century and what passes as Catholic literature today, uh, I would dare say there is lacking in most modern submissions, not just what Aquinas and the ancient critics would call the sublime, but also a decided lack even of the crass and the obscene. Think of, again, like maybe this is an American speaking here, but the puritanical nature of not wanting to put in certain elements. We think of the um, repugnance that certain people feel when they first encounter an author like Flannery O'Connor or something like that. And they say, why is she writing about these things? How awful. Uh, in fact, this is off script here, but you had mentioned John Senior a little earlier, who was a Catholic professor at the University of Kansas, where I taught students for a number of years before coming to Lincoln. And uh, a friend of, or a, a correspondent with John Senior shared a private letter where John Senior at the time, while Flannery O'Connor was alive, was saying, I can't believe we're publishing these things. There's so many nasty things in there. How dare we, right? So there's one good Catholic upbraiding another Catholic for what they thought was scurrilous things in the literature. Well, anyway, I am already drifting far from my goal, but let me tell you what my goal is. So the first goal this evening in the lecture is to show the connection between the absence of these two disparate faculties, the crass and the sublime in modern literature, and the superabundance of both the sublime and the crass in Chaucer and Dante. But in order to do that, we must first make clear what is meant by the crass and what is meant by the sublime. And I'm going to like pull the the rug out from underneath you and say that when we start with the sublime, I don't even want to start with that. We're going to start with beauty. 
What is beauty? Right? So the great patron of the Thomistic Institute has the least to say about beauty among the transcendentals. That is, if you crack open the Summa, the many volumes of the Summa that you'll probably find it in addition, and you go looking for beauty, you're going to be very hard pressed. There's a lot about truth. There's a lot about goodness. But today we love to like sort of like trill off truth, goodness, beauty. When you try to understand beauty in St. Thomas, it's very hard to, to nail him down on what he means by this. So... <clears throat> At the same time, I don't want us in this discussion of beauty to assume that the beautiful and the sublime are synonymous. So with that said, what is the beautiful? Let's pause and situate ourselves in what Thomas has to say about beauty, moving on to the sublime and then reflect upon the relation between the two. Again, the, the, and then there's the crassness of me talking with the, um, I don't know if the recording is going to pick up on the, um, the praise and worship going on in the next room, but it's certainly informing um, the tenor of my talk. Uh, and then reflect upon the relation between the beautiful and the sublime. So there are two passages I want to look at tonight uh, from Aquinas on the beautiful, right? So the first passage that we find about beauty in the Summa Theologiae uh, makes an early appearance. So it's in the first part of the Summa, and it's in question five, so very early on. And this is um, when Thomas is tackling on goodness in general. So the pertinent passage, which I would show on the slide that we can't project, but just have to follow along, right? Um, so beauty and goodness in a thing are identical fundamentally, for they are based upon the same thing, namely the form. And consequently, goodness is praised as beauty, but they differ logically, for goodness properly relates to the appetite Goodness being what all things desire, and therefore it has the aspect of an end. The appetite being a kind of movement towards a thing. And I'm going to pause here for a second, right? Like you understand that, like the goodness of, and I know that tomorrow is a Friday in Lent, so let's bring it up now while we can, right? So St. Patrick's Day, like the goodness of corned beef, right? It, it has a natural end. What's the natural end of the goodness of corned beef? Do I like put my corned beef on like a ionic column in the middle of a museum. You eat it. Yes, you eat it. You consume it, right? So it has this appetitive aspect, right? Um, so there's an appetitive aspect to the good that Thomas is talking about. So Thomas again. So on the other hand, beauty relates to the cognitive faculty. For beautiful things are those which please when seen. Hence, beauty consists in due proportion. I'll say it again because I actually like put it in bold and italics up there on the imaginary board. Beauty consists in due proportion. For the senses delight in things duly proportioned, as in what is after their own kind, because even sense is a sort of reason, just as is every cognitive faculty. Now, since knowledge is by assimilation and similarity relates to form, beauty properly belongs to the nature of a formal cause. And I want to pause here for a second and make sure, right? So we've understood two things here, or at least I hope are grass. One is that you desire what's good. Too often today I meet with students who, when they try to calculate something that's good, like the good of marriage, they create like mathematical formulas of whether or not you should marry this person. Or you marry the person, you, you desire to be with that person because it's good. You have an appetite for it, right? It's base, it's fundamental. On the other hand, um, there's something here in Thomas that is... Um, implicit, but I want to raise as a question to you. So he's saying beauty consists in due proportion. My question for you is that does all beauty have to pertain to sensible objects? 
That is, when we think of proportions, right, we think of sensible things like, the, you know, this podium, that door, the vibrations of the music that's funneling in through the other room has due proportions, has a measure and beat and rhyme. That is, it, at least it, we hope it does. Um, anyway, um, so the question is, is, is something beautiful always necessarily therefore sensible? Or is there a kind of beauty, a kind of proportion that can also pertain to the spiritual and the intellectual? So, and then my text reads, and I'm going to read it as the text reads, as you can see from the bold underlined italics in all caps, I very strongly suggest remembering the phrase beauty consists in due proportion. Among the lost books in antiquity I wish we retained, there is St. Augustine's early treatise, De Apto et Pulchritudine, on the fitting and beautiful, which, if we still had, it would perhaps be an interesting bridge between what we will soon discuss in ancient literary criticism and Christian aesthetics. Yes, St. Augustine wrote it before his conversion in Milan, but its thought reverberates in later commentaries we find of Augustine, Augustine on the Psalms and elsewhere in his sermons, right? There's lots of allusions that Augustine has in his own literature to what his thoughts are on beauty, but we've lost his work where he, he systematically treats the subject, okay? So we catch glimpses of Augustine on beauty, but nothing like what we uh, what that sustained treatise must have been. Um, but I want to leave aside for the moment uh, Augustine and return to Aquinas. So in the first part of the Summa, Aquinas touches on beauty as a foil to explain what goodness is as a final cause. And we incidentally see that beauty is a formal cause. And I, I there's undergraduates in the audience. So I want to make sure that everyone's kind of tracking with me here, right? So in case um, you don't know what we're talking about when we talk about formal and final causes, um, let's just do a brief review, right? So in scholastic philosophy, as well as dating all the way back to Aristotle, we we're said to be four causes, right? There's the material, the efficient, formal, and final cause. So, um, and then I was also like clicking through slides, so I had a clicker in my hand, right? So we're gonna use the clicker to talk about the causes, okay? So um, the clicker has a material cause, right? It's plastic. Um, there's some silicon chips inside of it. It has batteries. It's composed of chemicals, right? So those are the material causes of the clicker's existence. It has an efficient cause. First, there's the person who designed and patented the clicker. And again, it's the multi-step process of the world that we live in today, right? There's no like sort of like craftsman, right? I'm going to like handcraft you a clicker. There's no like yuppie commune in DC where they make like novelty clickers, right? This is just for you, okay? Um, so it has an efficient cause. First, the person who designed and patented and fabricated the clicker, right? And then the person who like mined for the materials that go into the clicker, then the person who fabricated the machines that put the clicker together, because again, it's machine made. So you have to make the machines to make the machine. We live in a very, very strange age. Okay, and then additionally, the clicker has a formal cause, which is, um, or sorry, the clicker has a formal cause in as much as it's a certain color. It's black, as far as I can tell. Yes, agreed. Okay, good. Um, with certain other colors, there's some silver and red, right? Um, it has a certain size and shape, right? So like if I brought in like a 20-foot clicker, um, that would be very weird, right? It's not convenient, right? The, the formal cause of most clickers is that they're meant to fit in the hand. This one's even ergonomic, right? It's fantastic. Of course, if it was microscopic, then it would also not be a very effective clicker, right? The clicker also has a final cause, which is to send discrete energy pulses that trigger my laptop to advance forward or backward on the slides. Um, while its laser might be used 
for example, so it also has a laser, right? So the laser could also be used, for example, to delight my cat, right? To send it scurrying around the room. That's not the final cause of the laser on the clicker. The final cause on the laser on the clicker is not this either to point out the fire sign. It's instead to point out the imaginary drop-down screen, which would have had these things illustrated for you. So uh, while the laser might be used to delight my cat, it's not its final cause, just as much as if I were to have an encyclopedia. Um, an encyclopedia, it, it can make a very good doorstop, right? But that's not the final cause of the encyclopedia. In fact, like if you had like a friend who only had a certain number of books and he only had his number of books for the number of doors that he had in his house, you'd said that he doesn't understand the final cause of books, right? You're like, these are some, have you been reading them? I don't, why would I read them? They're here to open a door. Now, since God is spirit, we have to understand that the beauty of God is not the same as a formal cause as the beauty of, let's say, the clicker, right? So, um, God's um, beauty is not the same as a clicker. His cause, his, his beauty is not the same as a podium. His beauty is not the same as the blazer. Or whether you think this or that other individual here or elsewhere is beautiful, right? So moreover, in this part of the Summa, Aquinas is demonstrating that God is the first cause of all things. The beauty of the creator is unlike the beauty of created things. As Gerard Manley Hopkins put it at the end of Pied Beauty, all things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change, praise him, right? And so there's a, an inherent contradiction here between the beauty of a God who, whose beauty is past change and then what Gerard Manley Hopkins finds beautiful about the world, its variegated forms. That is, if I were to present with you um, the new and improved version of beauty in human beings, and it was just like a uh, cylindrical block of one color, and I said, look, this beauty is past change, patented, galvanized steel, right? Um, that's not what we think of when it comes to the beauty of the human person, right? And in fact, the variegation of the human person is what makes the other person both beautiful and good to observe. Okay, so I think we can all readily grasp where beauty lies in a physical object. Um, exactly as the slide says, imagine a slide, in due proportion. But what about beauty in human beings? So in human beings, we're a body-soul composite. And inasmuch as we are created in the image and likeness of God, that image and likeness is, um, well, this is a question for you guys. Where is the image and likeness of God primarily situated in you as a body-soul composite? basic catechism. Soul. Yeah, it's in the spirit. God is spirit, right? So he are, again, this is Baltimore catechism, not the, the current CCC. But what you'll find there is that this image and likeness is primarily seated in the spirit, in the soul. So yes, the highest form of beauty for human beings resides in our spirit. Aquinas will return to beauty, therefore, when discussing the formal proportion, not of our bodies, but of our soul. He's not really concerned in the second part of the second part of, you know, like how many digits do we have, the, the height of people, the colors of people. He doesn't care about that, right? For him, in understanding our relation to God and Jesus Christ, he wants to look at our soul. So Aquinas returns to beauty when talking about the soul. And he's going to hone in on this in um, thinking about one particular virtue. So we have many virtues and think of some of the, again, like I'm imagining you guys have read something of Aquinas. And so you have some nebulous idea of some of the virtues he talks about. So what are some of the ones that Aquinas loves? 
What are some virtues, Catholic virtues? Faith. Prudence. Prudence, okay, good. I'm going to give that the other hand, okay. Hope and charity, of course, the greatest of all, the greatest of all, right? As, huh? Fortitude, temperance, and justice. justice. Yeah. What about justice? There is no justice. Okay. Apparently, there's justice here. Okay. So we have the cardinal virtues and we have the theological virtues. Um, and you guys want to take a guess of, of the seven that we just named? Because m- many of the other virtues are subsets of the, the seven, right? You want to take a guess where beauty resides in you? To reside in faith, hope, charity, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude. That was a weird way of arranging the cardinals one. Anyway, any any guesses? I guess it would be prudence because you have a proper, you have a proper proportion. Proper proportion? Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and read what Thomas says. Um, so Thomas reviews the virtue of honesty. Uh, which paradoxically is synonymous with, for Thomas with virtue. And honesty for Thomas is a subset of temperance. So it's a subset of temperance. So again, um, the proportionality here is, the, is of the beauty of the individual soul and not in necessarily in its relationship to others. So for us, the, the pertinent passage comes from Thomas when he says, the beauty of the body consists in a man having his bodily limbs well proportioned together with a certain clarity of color. On like manner, spiritual beauty consists in a man's conduct of actions being well-proportioned in respect of the spiritual clarity of reason. Now, this is what is meant by honesty, which we have stated to be the same as virtue. And it is virtue that moderates, according to reason, all that is connected with men, wherefore honesty is the same as spiritual beauty. Hence, Augustine says, by honesty, I mean intelligible beauty, which we properly designate as spiritual. Now, gosh, this is hardly the subject of the talk. Um, What is the subject of the talk? We're 20 minutes in and I haven't really hit it. Um, And by the way, since I wrote that there, you knew that it was intentional. Um, Oh yes, um, the crass and the sublime in Chaucer and Dante. And here we are a fifth of the way into the talk, actually further than I gotta truncate things here. And I have given space to none of them, but look, I cannot not say this. When it comes to poetry, literature, and beauty, things just got very, very interesting with what Aquinas had to say and what Aquinas is doing here. He's saying that beauty consists in proportion and clarity, but what does that mean for spiritual, non-corporeal substance to have clarity? And that is the question that I have for you, is your soul shiny, right? So he says beauty consists in proportion and clarity. So do you, what does it mean for your soul to have clarity? Does it, does it shine? Is it resplendent? Right. Can can you say, like, wait a second, like this room is dark, the lights are out, like, let me get my soul out. And no, you can't. Right. So. So what does he mean by this? Right. <clears throat> I would say that Aquinas says right here that your soul can be shiny. Your soul can be resplendent. Reason is the light of the soul. If reason illuminates your soul, your soul has light. Your soul has clarity. A rational person has a clarity of soul that makes their soul beautiful. And as he says, spiritual beauty in a man's conduct or actions being well-proportioned in respect of the spiritual clarity is reason. So honesty is beautiful. In fact, honesty is more beautiful than just about any physical object because the source of its beauty is closer to God, the source of all beauty. But wait, in Christianity, God became man. 
not just that, but the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ became man. So now what does that mean to do to beauty in poetry and art? That is, once we have the revelation of Jesus Christ, the God-man, then our understanding of what is beautiful in poetry and art changes necessarily as well. How can the mind not reel at the idea that the source of all beauty in proportion and reason was the logos, the incarnate word, and that word sweated tears of blood in Gethsemane, right? That he was nailed to the cross and that he died, right? That changes what is beautiful. The stakes of tonight's lecture are extraordinarily high then. For what other endeavor do we pursue where we put measure, proportion, and clarity into our words than poetry? That is, if we understand that God is logos, then our responsibility and mimicking of God and acting according with him, that is making the measure of our spiritual beauty the same measure of his spiritual beauty, then it has to do something with our word since he is the word. Okay? So now I want to turn to the, the sublime. Finally. Finally, this guy's getting to it. So it's my job basically to wreck everything that we were just thinking about beauty and muddle it up even more hopelessly or hopefully by discussing the sublime. Let me start with an invocation taken from Dante. It appears right in the beginning of Paradiso. When you heard that I was talking about the crass and the sublime in Dante, an easy assumption, at least if you had read the Divine Comedy. How many people have read the Divine Comedy? Okay, you wanna like, there's, okay. Ten, ten. You're in the middle of it, okay. Okay, so just like Dante, in the middle of life's journey, right? Okay, so um, so if you if you had had read some of it, you might assume that I was going to like cherry pick, right? That like when it came to the crass, I was just going to pick everything from the inferno. When it came to the sublime, I'm just going to say, and here's the paradiso, and that's not it at all, right? Um, so I want to turn to the opening of the paradiso, um, and gosh. <laughs> I'm not going to do the two illustrations because I can't show you the two illustrations. So we're going to skip over that part of the lecture. Um, and we're going to skip over this part where I talk about what's on the left and what's on the right. Um, so we're just going to go straight to Dante in the Paradiso. So it's my hope that this talk will make you question um, much of what you had assumed was beautiful or ugly, crass or sublime. So here at the beginning of the Paradiso, we find Dante invoking Apollo. It's a very strange thing to do. Invoking Apollo and saying... O oh, good Apollo, for this last labor, make me a vessel worthy of the gift of your beloved laurel. Up to this point, one peak of Mount Parnassus has been enough, but now I need both in order to confront the struggle that awaits. Enter my breast and breathe in me as when you drew out Marcius out from the sheathing of his limbs. So Christ is invoked under the guise of Apollo. This, this, the, the god of sun, light, reason. That's great. We can totally get that, right? The peaks of Parnassus, where the muses sing, dance, and inspire poets, they're just by their like literal nature, lofty and elevated images that, that raise us up. But what's he doing here in these last three lines with Marcius? Um, is anyone familiar with the, the, the myth of Marcius? No? Okay. So for those unfamiliar with the myth, that's all of you, okay? Um, the locus classicus at the time of Dante would have been the contest between Apollo and Marcius. Marcius was a satyr. Um, we you know what satyrs are. That's, um, Mr. Tumnus for you, uh, Chronos of Narnia fans. Okay. Sort of. He's, Mr. Tumnus is, he's a fawn. Yeah. Okay. Well, 
I won't get into that again after the talk. But um, for those of you, I think Seder is enough, right? He's, he's got goat legs and, and he's running around and he's you know, got little horns and he's playing panpipes. Actually, he's playing the, the alos. He's playing the, um, the double fluted instrument. So for the crime of having challenged Apollo to a musical contest, that is, I'm this ugly looking satyr, challenge you, the most beautiful and handsome of all the gods, playing your lyre, right? This ancient equivalent of the guitar, right? Um, for challenging Apollo, Marcius was flayed alive. That is, this wonderful god Apollo um, straps Marcius to the tree and takes out a, some sort of sharp instrument and removes all of the skin from this creature entirely. And, and I can think you would assume what happens to Marcius after this. He dies. Yeah. So this is how Dante begins Paradiso. It's very strange. It's extraordinarily violent. In fact, um, you know, there are some, some paintings and sculptures that depict the flaying of Marcius. But um, since I just met you, I didn't think it was appropriate to share them. Right? We can talk about it. But then the, the fault of the, the image is, lies in your own head. So the question I have is, is it beautiful? To remove someone's epidermis is not going to improve the proportions of the body, right? Because all the muscles are going to contract, okay? Nor will it add to the clarity of that person. They're not going to be beautiful, right? And yet as a metaphor for the poet who dares to outdo the word, with capital W word, with his words, I will argue that this is a beautiful and sublime turn of phrase. But before we return to how this is sublime, let us come to some sort of definition of the sublime. So I've been talking about it, but we don't know what it is. Um, the term sublime is the Latin form of the Greek word tohupos, uh, or sorry, tohupsos, which was the subject of the first century AD treatise ascribed to Longinus, uh, commonly called today on the sublime. The Greek refers to those qualities which make literature high or lofty. Um, I myself prefer the Latin because it has, that is the word sublime, because it has the additional image of taking us up and beyond some imaginary barrier that separates the earth and the heavens. And here I have a, a wonderful sl slide showing Empedocles breaking through the eighth sphere and gazing out into the heavens, right? That is, in the, in the ancient world, there was this belief of um, various spheres of influence uh, and the stars. And when you got beyond that, then you could see into the inner heaven and you could see God, right? And so this idea of the sublime is that which transports us up and out of our earthly concerns and, and beyond that to the heavenly. So if we had time for a course of poets on poetry, I would argue that Pseudo-Longinus did not come up with the concept on his own and that he stands at the end of a long tradition of thought going back to Hellenistic Alexandria. And, and even uh, as I was thinking on the plane ride, um, it's even earlier than that. In, in Homer, in book three of the Iliad, um, Prime is talking with Helen about the various heroes outside the city. And Prime describes um, the, this meeting of Menelaus and Odysseus. And he talks about how Menelaus speaks and how Odysseus speaks. And Menelaus is very straight and to the point, right? He's a, he's a, he's a tall, good-looking dude, and he relies on force right, to make himself understood. On the other hand, Odysseus is kind of hunched over, right, he's, he's kind of um, infirm, he's leaning on a staff, right, he's got his hood up, 
But when he speaks, Prime says it's just like drifts of snow falling down in the way that it mesmerizes us. Okay. So um, there, even, we have this distinction in kinds of speech in Homer that continues on into Alhellenic Alexandria um, with the ideas of phrases like leptotes or refinement that can be found in poets like Callimachus and Theocritus, as well as in scholastic, scholiastic, not scholastic, scholiastic commentaries that developed a sophisticated coded vocabulary to describe their approbation and dissatisfaction with terms of phrases and poets ranging from Homer and Hesiod to Pindar and the Greek tragedians. Debate continued in commentaries and inside poetry uh, in both Greek and Latin authors. However, Pseudo-Longinus gives us our only extant handbook devoted to the topic. We know that there were others, but this is what we have, and we're going to have to make do with what we have. So on the category of the sublime, um, Pseudo-Longinus implicitly presents... um, that is the aesthetic debate. That is, if he's talking about what's really true, it doesn't matter whether or not we have explicit arguments about it, right? Sorry, I'm, I'm, for time's sake, I'm, I'm truncating this, right? So it doesn't matter if we have, we have explicit arguments about this, right? So Pseudo-Longinus wrote this treatise in, um, during the Roman Empire. It gets lost. It doesn't resurface until the 16th century. But just because Pseudo-Longinus was lost didn't, wasn't, doesn't mean that like the sublime is lost. It's not like Dante can't write something sublime just because some guy who commented on what the sublime is doesn't use it, right? The same way that like if I don't have necessarily in my vocabulary a color term doesn't mean that that color doesn't exist. Agreed, right? Or um, my my wife's family has um, some um, certain color blindnesses, the the green reds, right? Just because they have are missing that doesn't mean that green red distinction doesn't exist. Okay. So um, Pseudo-Longinus did become important when he was rediscovered in the 16th century. And there's a host of other people that we could talk about tonight, and I'm going to not talk about them, but in a paraphrastic way, which means I'm going to say I'm not saying them, but then I'm going to mention them, which just is sort of good scholarship, I guess, question mark. So um, for the French, at least, in 1674, um, we have an early translation of Longinus into the French, uh, and that becomes popular amongst them. Uh, among the English, we find Pseudo-Longinus and his ideas of the sublime present um, earlier than this, but it really takes off with Edmund Burke in 1757 with a philosophical inquiry into the origin of ideas of the sublime and beautiful. And Burke goes on a whole other tangent and host of things that really aren't the subject of today. So we're just going to breeze right past Burke and maybe someone's going to write that down. Graham, I'm looking at you. And at some point in your life, you're going to read Burke. Okay. And in less than a decade after that, we're going to see Pseudo-Longinus back on the continent in Immanuel Kant's observation on the feeling of the beautiful and sublime, which he wrote in 1764, right? So this is sort of the high watermark for um, the concepts of the sublime, and that's going to still be present and, and drift into uh, romantic thought um, in, you know, for the Germans, the Sturm und Drang of the late 18th century going into the romantics of the, of the 19th century. But um, towards the end of this paper, I want to turn to the sublime in modern and postmodern literature and thought. But since we are treating the topic in Dante and Chaucer, um, it must be best for us here to stop short of the history of the sublime and return to Pseudo-Longinus and see how the author himself defines it. So for Pseudo-Longinus, the, the thing you've been waiting half an hour for me to finally come out and just say, what is the sublime, right? You're, you're on tenterhooks. I can see it in your, in your eyes. Um, so there are five means of achieving the sublime in literature. The first two only arise through the natural genius of the writer. So either you have it or you don't, okay? 
So uh, in sort of like putting it in sports metaphors, right? Like um, if you're Shaquille O'Neal, there's certain natural qualities that he has being extraordinarily tall that like are, are not under your control, okay? You're not as tall as Shaq. I'm sorry, should I bring up another LeBron? Is that is that more appropriate? Okay, thank you, okay. You're not as tall as LeBron. I don't think any of us is as tall as LeBron, right? So naturally we're just not that gifted. However, right, there's a few others that we can cultivate by art or techne. So um, again, this is where I would list them on the slide, but you're just gonna have to follow along with me. Fingers out, right? One, two, three, four, five. This is exactly how many you have on a hand. Hopefully, no one lost a finger here. No, okay, good. So first, there are thoughts of great strength or power, right? So this is a natural ability for the author. Second, there is the presence of vehement and enthusiastic passion. So um, what he means by this is he's, um, it, it, it violently carries you away and it's enthusiastic on. That is, um, the God is literally inside you. There's something about your pathos, your passion, that is open and received to divine inspiration, right? And you either naturally have it or don't. I'm going to, again, I'm looking at time. I'm going to make you wait yeah, after. The so the first one is there are thoughts of great strength or power, right? So again, what he's saying here is that you're, it's not that your thoughts are great, right? It's that they're, uh, what he says literally is kratiston. They are very strong. It's like your thoughts have been working out at the gym for a year. Okay. This is what he means by that, right? So they're strong thoughts, right? Such an overpowering thought that when it's first presented to you, other people don't think of it and they go, whoa. Okay, that sort of moment. Second, there's the presence of vehement and enthusiastic passion. That is, um, there's something about what you're saying that it that implies that you are open to divine inspiration. That the the strength and vehemence of what you're feeling can't come except for God speaking through you. Third, there are lofty figures of thought. Fourth, there are lofty figures of speech. So that is, the first two I don't have control over, right? Lofty figures of thought, I do, right? I can choose what I write about. If I write about assembling Ikea furniture, I'm not really touching on the sublime, okay? You're not gonna find a sublime Ikea ad. I hate to like break it to you, okay? On the other hand, there are lofty figures of speech and this is what we would call diction, okay? This is where we mind our, our manners, mind our words, right? And finally, there's a lofty or sublime way of arranging words. So it's, it would take far too long for me to go section by section to illustrate all five of these, but let me pause for a moment to consider what pseudo-Longinus means by the last artistic means of infusing literature with the sublime. Um, in Latin poetry, there's something called the golden line. For those who have a little Latin, you know, as a highly inflected language, it has a, a lot of leeway in deciding where to put words inside a sentence. And yet there are certain ways of ordering a sentence that are loftier. If you ever studied the Roman poet Virgil, you would have seen a few instances of the golden line so um, an example of this in English would be, um, so this is the line translated, right? A golden clasp fastens her purple cloak, right? So in English, we have adjective, noun, verb, adjective, uh, object, right? So again, subject, verb, object, see, spot, run, right? But Latin has this ability to move words inside a sentence. And so there becomes these beautiful turns of phrase that you can achieve in English. So in the Latin, it goes, Aurea paporiam subnectit fibula vestem, right? So the adjective for the first thing, then the adjective for the second thing. Subnectit, their verb, and then the first noun, and then the second noun. So the adjectives are over here, the nouns are over here, the verb's in the middle, and we just have a five-word line. It's beautiful. 
I don't know how to convince you it's beautiful. Go study some Latin and you'll realize just how beautiful this is, okay? Um, so I'm going to give you some examples in English just to make it clear, right? So the phenomenon is not unknown in English, right? There is, especially before the 21st century, an ability to move our syntax in English to achieve, to achieve sublimity. So let me show you an example, or let me uh, tell you an example that I think we all know, right? So to be or not to be, that is the question. Now, I'm going to switch the order on you, right? This is Callahan's paraphrase. The question is to be or not to be, right? So to be or not to be, that is the question. The question is to be or not to be. And now I'm going to switch the order in the diction, and I'm going to give you the no fear Shakespeare version, right? So the question is, is it better to be alive or dead, right? Just like get to the point, man, right? Come on, Shakespeare. Um, so I think the example of Shakespeare is a good moment to stop and situate the sublime in opposition to two uh, extremes. So um, if you're visualizing this, it would be sort of a bell curve, right? That is, the virtue of sublimity in our arts is the high point in the bell curve. And on the left, there's a deficiency. And on the right, there is an, an excess. And both deficiency and excess lead to vice, okay? And this goes for all virtues, right? Um, this idea of excellence or virtue consisting of a mean between two extremes goes back to the Nicomachean ethics, which I, I think, again, is a, a, a locus that many undergraduates understand, right? So, for example, um, courage, right? Courage or fortitude is not just opposed to cowardice, but it's also opposed to foolhardiness, right? So if that point is not made clear to you, right? Courage is not just the ability to perform a certain action despite the danger, but also not taking on unnecessary dangers. So let me give you an example, right? Um, uh, we would say that, um, sorry, your name was? Giovanni. Oh, I know Giovanni. Yeah, I know you, but that's... Jameson. 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 Sorry, Giovanni, I'm leaving you out of this. Uh, that same sad look I remember as a kid. Right. <laughs> Jameson, right? So if Jameson were to rush in front of a bus to save a child who had wandered into the street, we would say Jameson's courageous. In fact, like the mayor might give him the keys to the city and all this other stuff, right? Um, now you, you brought yourself into it, Giovanni, right? So if Giovanni were to rush in front of a bus because a prize burrito they bought for lunch was sitting on the, on the street and would have been run over, right? And he gets hit by the bus, right? That's not courageous, right? Running and saving a burrito is not courageous, right? You're just being foolhardy, okay? Um, unless it were like a really good burrito, right? Um, anyway, uh, Pseudo-Longinus does not give us, um, he does give us the two extremes opposed to the sublime. So on the one hand, there's the puerile. Um, for those who didn't take Latin, puerile is the, comes from the word for puer, or boy, right? So it's a boyish thing, right? So we can think of this in writing. Right? Your, your writing is boyish or it's immature. As Longinus characterizes it, immaturity comes from hasty and ill-considered ways of constructing the thought. I would say that the no-fear Shakespeare version of the question is, is it better to be alive or dead, is a great example of a deficiency of sublimity, Right? On the other hand, um, we could also say that there is an excess, a certain pomposity. Uh, Pseudo-Longinus calls this uh, the tumid or the swollen, right? That is, you might equally imagine yourself butchering the sublimity of Shakespeare by saying that you can make it better, right? To be or not to be, that is a question. No, 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 Shakespeare, that's just too mundane. Ach, forsooth, right? <laughs> to be, ah, oh, to not to be. Hence the question, right? And so again, there's like this um, uh, this this 
overdoneness, right, that, that leads to excess, that's also not virtuous. So hopefully you have a better idea then of what we mean by the sublime and syntax arrangement of words. It's a Goldilocks principle. Now, as you can see, um, it's not always exactly clear. Um, that is, if it's a bell curve, right, that is sometimes you're, you're right on the money and sometimes you're, you're a little deficient or a little over, but you're not necessarily zooming into the vice, okay? Um, so let's return to Dante. Dante's invocation of Marcius at the beginning of Paradiso, right? So just to remind you, right, he says, O good Apollo, for this last labor, make me a vessel worthy of the gift of your beloved laurel. Up to this point, one peak in Mount Parnassus had been enough, but now I need them both in order to confront the struggle that awaits. Enter my breast and breathe in me as when you drew out Marcius out from the sheathing of his limbs. Is this a thought of great strength or power? Yes, right? Who thinks of that, right? That's really weird, right? Uh, Dante is trying to have you imagine the experience of being raised by God out of earthly experience and drawn up into heaven. In a sacrament, invisible grace is made present through visible signs. God is humbling himself to operate by our rules of knowledge. Now Dante is trying to give us a glimpse of knowing the world of grace and abandoning the world of the senses. And he's doing this through strong images. It's the only way he can achieve this because we, as body-soul composites, come to know through our senses. So he has to give us a strong enough sensory experience that it knocks you out of it, right? Kind of like uh, comically, we, we imagine, you know, drunks being woken up with a splash of cold water or something, right? He has to violently wake you up to the spiritual reality. So does Dante present vehement enthusiastic passions? Yes. By its very definition, enthusiasm is the indwelling of God. He feels and asks us to feel the presence of God in a violent and enthusiastic passion, right? It's not like this, like, oh, God, it'd be really great if you were here. Let's get some drums out and just hang out. That's nice. That's cozy. That's comfortable. What Dante's saying is, God, I want you to breathe into me, and I want you to breathe into me so strong that you just, like, rip out the flesh from my skin, right? That is a violent passion for God and his presence in a way that's neglectful of your very self. So is this a lofty figure of thought? Absolutely. What loftier thought could there be than an intimate union in mind with God? Does God, does Dante use lofty figures of speech? Does his diction befit the, the thought? I'm, I'm not going to get you bogged down in the Italian, but I would say so. Um, and just listen to the lines describing the flaying of Marcius. Entra nel petto mio espira tue, siccome quando Marcia tresti della vagina de la membra sue. So what's going on there, right? So last, as for the sublime arrangement of words, right? So we can look at verse 19 and we can see how the second person, entra and spiritue, surround petomio, right? So he's asking God, who literally in the line, God's on the, the first part of the line and the last part of the line. He's asking God, nel petomio, right? Come inside. But that's what the line does. The line's showing you what he's saying. It's beautiful. And the, the same can be said for the third line there, verse 21. The sejura, which is very strong in this line, separates the skin from the body. So the poetry does what the poetry is saying. It separates the two. It's beautiful. It's sublime in the way that he's crafted it. All right, so before we turn to the second half of our title, and I'm going to have to cut things here as I'm looking at it, looking at the time, I want to pause for a moment and make a suggestion as to what is at stake in pursuing the sublime in poetry. If Dante were a painter or sculptor rather than a poet, 
The images he presents of Apollo flaying Marcius alive might arguably not be sublime, but the effect here is meant to transport us out of what we know. It's a rather odd thing for metaphor to do. Most of us were taught in high school or thereabouts that metaphors in literature are meant to take something unknown to the reader and make it known, right? Right? My, uh, my love is like a red, red rose, right? You don't know my love, but you know red, red rose. I want to make you know that, so they're going to give you the metaphor, right? Now, um, but think about what Dante is trying to do. He's trying to rouse us out of our sensible knowledge into exploring the spiritual realities of paradise. The point of the metaphor for Dante is to inspire wonder, which, as St. Thomas says, is the first step along the pursuit of wisdom. Wonder does not come from something known and commonplace, unless perhaps we were to see it in a new light for the first time and realize that we never really knew it. But you would think me rather silly if I wondered at ordinary objects which were known to all of you. Imagine for a second, right, someone busting through the door. It's not that hard with what we've had tonight. Imagine for a moment a crazed student entering this room who is filled with wonder at how a whiteboard marker works. So she bursts into the room and says, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. It writes and you can erase what it writes, right? And all of us are like, yeah, we know. Like, there's no wonder on our part at the whiteboard marker, okay? It's a miracle for her, right? So wonder can only be inspired by a realization that there's a deficiency of knowledge in myself. A desire to know the unknown, to grasp the rainbow, to pull down the moon, that is wonder about earthly things. But how do I inspire wonder and desire in you for the spiritual realities that surround us? For Dante, it takes something violent and unexpected to strike us out of our complacency. The point is not the imagining of the physical pain of separating skin from flesh. The point is that there is a part of you, the spiritual faculties of the soul, capable of desiring and experiencing spiritual realities outside ourselves, that Dante must awaken. And then the shock of thinking of this soul as capable of receiving and responding to grace is as shocking to our ordinary lives as though someone were to peel off your skin. Again, the point of the metaphor is not to give you a sure knowledge in human language of a reality that transcends ordinary human language. The point of the metaphor is, to con is, is <clears throat> not to confuse. The point of the metaphor is to cut you, right, with a realization that you do not know. It fills you with a longing, a desire that grows into a wonder for something more, and that wonder sets you on the path for wisdom, which, as we know from Aquinas, is knowledge of God and contemplation of God. Okay, so I've not even talked about the crass, and I'm already running up against time. So we're going to do bad service to Chaucer. So I'm going to conflate for now when we're talking about the crass, uh, the two things, purility and timidity by the, the term crass, right? Because crass means, um, you know, both we'd say like, he, he said something really crass, right? That, that's kind of like a boyish thing. Like, you know, like guys would say at Avalon, right? Um, or, or the Heights. Um, or, uh, two schools here outside D.C., or we could say that the crass is also something, crass literally means that something is fat, right? Um, and so timidity, the swollenness of it. So crass, I think is good. I don't like the word obscene, and I'm gonna give you an example of why I don't find obscene right. Because obscene is a Latinate word, and so the obscene doesn't illustrate itself by itself, right? That is, it's always a little bit polite to say that something's obscene, right? So I could say that John told an obscene joke. That's not gonna strike you as much as saying, John just told a filthy joke, right? We use filthy, a nice Anglo-Saxon word is going to hit you in the gut and you're going to feel that like, oh gosh, I don't want to hear what that was. Or you want to hear what it was because you're, no, no, I don't know. You guys are better than that. Um, so crass as a category connotes what Suno Longinus 
means by puerility, the sort of language, figures, and dictions thought worthy of middle school boys. On the other hand, the etymology points to the fatness of it as well. So I should clarify with this um, that um, some writings we just don't attribute categories of sub sublimity or crassness to, right? So, um, you know, like uh, that, that um, right here, we have the, the exit instructions in case of a fire, right? We're not going to fault the exit instructions on, in case of a fire for lacking sublimity, right? Where's the metaphors, man? <laughs> right? Like, you know, it's like, hence, forsooth, get thee out. The, <laughs> the, 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 the sinister passage. Oh, sinister means left. I mean, you got the left. No, no, no. You don't want sublimity in your, your fire exit strategy. What you want in your fire exit strategy is get out here, right? Okay, so that's fine. We don't fault that. But when it comes to literature, right, and what's supposed to be lofty, what's supposed to inspire us, right, we want to find the sublime and we want to find the crass. Um, and I want to show you, uh, again, I'm going to cut myself here, um, two images of crassness that I think are sublime in Dante and Chaucer. So one is in the Inferno. I'm going to cherry pick back to the Inferno, where um, in Canto 25, um, he has a figure, uh, in, in a robber in, in Canto 25 in the Inferno say, then making the figs with both his thumbs, the thief raised up his fist and cried, take that God, I aimed it at you. And for you who don't understand like what these, I'm not gonna do it with my hands in case anyone has Italian heritage and understands what these mean. He's making very not nice hand gestures, the kind of hand gestures you might make on 295 or somewhere else on the beltway at DC at, at, at other people in traffic, okay? Which I hope you don't do, go take that to confession. Um, but whatever you're doing, hand gestures, right? Not something you think of as like, wow, Dante, this is sublime. Someone, you know, making rude hand gestures at God, right? Um, and then you have Chaucer, right? And, and Chaucer, we know sort of the crass in Chaucer if you've read the Canterbury Tales, right? Has people read some of the Canterbury Tales? Um, the whole inspiration for this talk came when I, when I stopped teaching on the East Coast and I went to the Midwest and I was teaching Canterbury Tales. We, we read The Knight's Tale, everything went fine. We got to the Miller's Tale where two college boys are there with a mother and a daughter and I don't need to tell you what else happens. And all of a sudden this girl could not, I can't take this class. We're teaching evil and wicked things, right? And so like saying, okay, there's something there going on where there's a disconnect between the, the Catholic world of today, which has a, a, a a prudishness to approaching topics that relate to bodily functions, right? Versus what Chaucer and Dante felt that they could talk about, right? Um, and, and so again, for time's sake, I'm gonna cut out much of Chaucer and I apologize to Chaucer, but I'll give him the last word, right? On these ideas, right? So uh, there's a wonderful book by Chaucer that I, I doubt many of you have read though. And it's, it's, it is complete, unlike Canterbury Tales. And it's his Troilus and Cressede. Right, um, it was uh, in part um, what you find, and again, I, I would say Chaucer here is actually better than Shakespeare. Uh, Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida is, is is not really good unless you really understand what's happening in in Jacobean uh, theater at the time. And we don't have to go into that. Um, but it's a it's when you think about it in terms of like the crass and the sublime, it's a rather crass tale, right? Pandarus, the the uncle, right, is is trying to pander. It's where we get the word pander, right, in terms of sexual acts between Troilus and Cressede, right? And the whole drama for the first four books is what's going on there. It comes to a climax in the fifth book where, um, uh, where, where Cressede leaves and, and Troilus is heartbroken and he writes letters back and forth to her. And the letters are signed off with like French signatures, like, 
vostrate, right? Your your tea, right? Like so they don't again they're the lovey dovey terms, right? So it's a very crass thing, right? Like um you're you're lovey dovey, right? It's not very sublime, right? But then at the end of it, right? So they're like writing these letters back and forth, and then he dies, right, doing this very like foolish, like immature thing. And suddenly Chaucer says, and when I'm gonna translate very on the fly here from you know what Chaucer says to, to English, right? Or to your English. When that he was slain in this manner, his uh, light ghost full blissfully is gone up to the holiness of the eighth sphere. So like this guy who's total creep, right? And not really a great hero gets to go to the, like the, the inner heavens, right? So he goes to the eighth sphere in converse lighting everich element, right? And there he saw with full vision the erratic sphere, the stars, the stars as they're wandering around, hearkening harmony with sounds full of heavenly melody. And down from then, he quickly looks this little spot of earth that with the sea embrace it is and fully begins to despise this wretched world and heard all as vanity to respect of the plain felicity that is in heaven above. And at the last, there he was slain, his looking down he cast. So again, he's transported out of himself up to the highest heaven. And he looks down at the whole world and he zooms in on his dead body and he feels bliss, right? And this is a very sublime moment for Chaucer. And um, I'm going to cut myself here. Again, I, I practiced this in, in before I gave it and I, I somehow, I don't know how I, I I imagine it's the fault of the people playing music in the other room. Got myself distracted so that I went off script and didn't keep time. Um, but with modern aesthetics, what we have is a dimming of the world, a dimming of the ability for us to have the sublime. I have a paragraph here, which is the opening paragraph to The Old Man of Sea in, in Ernest Hemingway. Go read that, right? It's fantastic prose, but it lacks sublimity, right? And then I have an additional thing where I note on postmodern aesthetics, where I give you a, a very contemporary interpretation of Hemingway, where um, someone uh, jokingly uh, breaks up the old man in the sea as if it were a clickbait ad, so that every sentence is broken in with with links to ads of like, you know, seafood recipes, and um, you know he hasn't caught a fish for forty days, and so you know like forty days to pay down your mortgage. The sort of clickbait stuff that we're all subject to when we go on the internet, right? And that's the postmodern. The postmodern, right, finds the lack of the sublime in the modern, and it tries to reinject the sublime. But without the divine, what the postmodern can do is shock and awe, right? But it cannot elevate us. And so when we look here then at Chaucer and Dante, what do I find in them? I find in them a certain hope and a sign for how we're going to recover a Catholic aesthetic. And a Catholic aesthetic that in order to embrace the sublime also has to roll up its sleeves and not get in, not get a be afraid to get into the sort of things that, that Chaucer and Dante talked about, right? That is to go out here in the streets in, in DC, right? To, to, to soak up the wonderful smells of the subway system and everything else that Chaucer and Dante would have a field day with, right? But we think it's not sublime to talk about these things. Well, that's not what the sublime is. The sublime is giving you metaphors and images and, and thoughts that are going to transport you out of yourself, right? So before I say my goodbye, I'd like to leave you with one last example of the sublime that blends Chaucer and Dante. In the very last stanza of Trellis and Cressida, Chaucer draws on Dante and he says, though one and two and three eternal and live, 
that reign I in three and two and one, uncircumstect and all waste circumscribe, us from visible and invisible enemies defend, and to thy mercy everyone, so make us Jesus, for thy mercy uh, worthy. For love of maid and mother, thy benign, amen. Now, I, I'm almost done. Now look, just because I have chosen examples in both Chaucer and Dante that leaned heavily on the descriptions of heaven, I don't want you to get mistaken and think that I'm going to create something that's sublime and so I have to describe heaven. That's not my point. But what motivates everything that is sublime is that these authors, and all arguably authors who write about something that is sublime, are motivated with, by with what Dante called the love that moves the sun and all the other stars. That's the last line of the parodies. So. So hopefully at this point in the lecture, I avoided any boyish scurrility. Um, and I fear if I continue talking, I will overshoot any hope of inspiring you with the sublime sense of wonder by overstaying my welcome and lapsing, lapsing into timidity. So it's my hope that like Chaucer and Dante, while I may discuss the crass, I have pointed you to the sublime. So thank you. So are there any questions? So of the five aspects of sublimity that you, that you mentioned. Yeah. Right? There were the first two we couldn't really do much about, but the other three. Well, um, I, I would argue different. So this is Pseudo Longinus writing this, right? And so um, he's saying you can't really do much about having um, God inspire you, right? To which the Christian answer would be that um, you, can, you can pray. Now, is that a properly oriented prayer? Um, there's a lot of other things going on there where you're like, you know, God, please make me a good novelist. And, you know, is that a prayer that God's going to answer, right? Like, are you, are you asking for, are you asking for a stone and God's going to give you an egg, right? Or am I mixing that one up in the gospel passage? Bread and serpents and all that. Anyway, God's going to give you what you need, right? So he may inspire you. And I'm sure that having a good prayer and moral life are going to open you up to inspiration because as Aquinas would say that, that moral clarity, that spiritual beauty of honesty and an honest soul is going to hear God. Um, and, and so so there is something you can technically do that I would, I would argue against pseudo-Lenice, kind of. But then in, in other ways, it's not your control. So the three that you can't control. Was that yeah, your so, question? Yeah, the three. So but of the three that we can definitely control, um, besides obviously reading the rates, um, sort of figuring some of stuff out, and we, we can get examples of them, what else can we, can we do to, to um, work that skill? So what I would say is what, uh, again, like, Go read Pseudo-Longinus because it's a treatise basically saying how you cultivate them, right? Because he says, like, here are the five. I can't really give you two of them. So, and he's writing to his friend, uh, his, his friend who's a Roman Terentius, and he's saying, well, what can I give you with the other three? You're going to be dissatisfied because there are actually some missing passages in the manuscript, so we don't have all of it. So there's going to be passages where he promises something and then he does deliver it. It's kind of like me tonight, okay? <laughs> I promised some things. I didn't actually give them. Um, now, Pseudo-Longinus is going to um, go through those three things, and he's going to say, um, you know, again, again, like you imitate your way to greatness, right? That's the sort of classical way of understanding your education. So reading great poetry, memorizing great poetry, imitating those authors. And that was sort of um, education in the Roman world and Greco-Roman world at that time, right? Uh, and the exercises that I as a classics major would practice, which is like, okay, uh, your, your assignment this week is to go write a, a speech in defense of something that we don't have an extant speech for, but you're going to pretend that you're Livy or Tacitus or so-and-so and you're gonna write it there. And so what happens there is then you immerse yourself in the, the style, the diction, the phrases, the syntax of that author and the thoughts and images, right? So one of the things that we would talk about in class, in, in my class, class would be like, well, okay, uh, 
the word for a sword in prose is gladius. But if you're writing a poem, you're going to use ensis, which is the Latin word for a sword, right? And that's the poetic word for a sword, right? So you know whether to say, like, again, like, um, you know, you say something like lightsaber, right? Saber is a more poetic word than saying, like, uh, my light, sharp, sharp object, right? Uh, you know, like, I see you've constructed your own light, sharp object. Congratulations, you're a true Jedi, right? Like, that's... Again, there's, there's certain things that are pathetic, right? That is, they, they fall to the level of bathos. What the Greeks would say is they're, they're so heavy with being absurd that they're not worthy of us, right? And so uh, an instruction manual might tell you to beware of sharp objects, right? But if I want to inspire a child to like imagine that they're some sort of inner space knight, right? Using the word saber is a lot cooler than sharp object. Is that like, yeah. and you're only going to encounter the word saber in its context by like watching and reading and, and, and exposing yourself to great things. I'm not saying that Star Wars necessarily is the sublime. It's not, it's, it's space soap opera. I, I'm just throwing massive amounts of shade. If I hadn't lost you, if I hadn't lost you before, I've lost you now. Fantastic. Um, did I answer your question? Okay, Graham. Okay, so now that I've got you talking about like- Star Wars, yeah, okay. Modern things. One thing that maybe that like came to my mind when you mentioned the, the Catholic world nowadays, like the movie and the. Uh, well, I, 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 I preface that right. I would say in my experience, and it's a limited experience of the American Catholic world and its publishing. Right. There's a certain, and again, like this is me coming from culturally from New Jersey, right? From Irish Italian uh, uh, Irish Italian communities around Philadelphia, right? Uh, we did not mince words, right? Uh, and so going going off to college in the South and then teaching now in the Midwest. Like I noticed that like there's certain turns of phrase that I used growing up in New Jersey when someone cuts in front of you on the road. I don't use that with people now, right? Um, <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm not like I'm not like taking. No, it's okay. With you. Um, but it made me think of my own opinions on art, and um, and one particular work which I've had a lot of exposure to over the last like five years, and had and used to love, but now I've kind of turned away for, um, for like maybe the same reason. Game of Thrones. I wanted to know if you have any opinions on that because I, I don't. It's really crass. It it's crass. It's <laughs> purely crass, okay. right? Like, again, like there's no sublimity of. <laughs> no, no, it, it's just crass, right? That is, um, if, if Dante is bringing, uh, sorry, excuse me, the turn of phrase, like if Dante's bringing in like fecal matter and like snakes and blood and all these other things, like it, it's it's not just for like the fun of it, right? Dante's bringing that in because these images rouse in you certain thoughts and point you to something else. Uh, George R.R. Martin's been very explicit that he's an anti-Tolkien and that all this stuff and all the shock and awe of Game of Thrones is not meant to lead you to anything. It's meant to shock and awe you and fill you with despair. That's the difference, right? And, and this is Joseph Pieper uh, in, in Leisure, the Basis of Culture, where he talks about the difference between wonder and despair. And the only difference between wonder and despair is desire, right? So in both wonder and despair, I feel a lack in myself. I don't understand something. I don't know someone, right? I feel despair about that lack of knowledge when I give up, which again, like uh, um, for millennials, which is my generation or Gen Zers, right? That is something that really disturbs me, right? And I really need you guys to, to be open to wonder in your lives. You guys, 
maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but you know, my own generation and yours, there is this knowledge of our lack of knowledge. What's dangerous contemporarily is not the lack, the, the lack, of, lack of knowing that you don't know, it's that you know that you don't know and you don't care. I'm not saying you, Graham, specifically. You're obviously here. This is, you're already on the path to wisdom. But I'm saying that there's this element here, culturally speaking, of we know that we don't know and we don't care. Who cares? Right? I got it on my phone. I got it on whatever. My magic box can tell me I don't need to know myself. There's no wonder in me then at the world and the things that I can learn in the world. Wonder instead is filled with hope. It sees all the things that it doesn't know. And it says, I'm going to try anyway. Right? And, and that is like a fantastic attitude to approach. And God sees that. God sees the wonder in you. And he says, yeah, you're not going to get here on your own with me. I'm going to have to reach down there, right? I'm going to have to incarnate myself 2,000 years ago, suffer, die, resurrect, and then bring you along with me in this journey. You don't have the skills of, to, to know this thing. You have enough to know that you don't know. And that's all I wanted to give you. That's all I'm asking of you, right? And a little bit of hope that like I can fulfill the promise of actually showing it to you. Like that's, that's beautiful. Sorry, speaking of what I just said, it's beautiful. That's a weird fall. That's a weird, it's St. Patrick's Day. I'm allowed one. Uh, yes, although we're also, I, I, I want to be conscious of other people's time. But yes, what, what's the, the question? No, I, but again, like life's um, synchronicities. I had someone who popped up recommending this author um, just the other day. Okay. So again, now, now, now it's like actually going to go into my like to read list. Yeah, um, I'm not, yeah. Are you saying that I should not be in my no, to read? No, it, it should be on a read list if you are interested in these things. He's a fan of the, the macabre in a sense, um, but of like the beautiful aspect of it. Sort of like he, he props up uh, an example is the death of St. Sebastian at his prime as the epitome of beauty, where mm -hmm. you almost need that. You almost need that. Um, Talk about the crack. I just took a drink of water and spilled it all over myself. Where you, where you need the self-destruction aspect of it. Um, I guess the skinning alive maybe reminded me of that. Yeah, actually, um, statues of Marcius were inspiration for early Catholic statues and, and other things of Sebastian. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that figure pose of um, Sebastian that we get, the classical one, yeah. um, that's based on Marcius. So, but just specifically, how does the, maybe like the... Like well, the, I, yeah, I, 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 I talked about this and alluded to it earlier in the talk, right? And this is how things, how the beautiful changes when you have a God who becomes incarnate and who, who suffers and dies and on the cross, right? So that changes what beauty is, right? And what that measure is. And then we learn a whole other meaning of beauty, especially physical beauty. Um, uh, and I don't think we have time to like fully go into that, but I, 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 it was in the talk and I, I want that to be something that you, you come away thinking about. But again, it's different than like, sort of like the postmodern approach to it, where it's like, here's this installation in the, the um, museum of, of a toilet filled with um, stuff, right? Uh, and we're going to call this art, right? And it's beautiful. Well, no, right? Again, like it's got that postmodern sensibility, which is, is poking and prodding at the modern, right? Which wants order, right? Um, and it's trying to shock us, right? Which is what the sublime does do. The sublime shocks us, right? Um, 
but there's there's something else that needs to be going on there. There needs to be something else beyond just shock, right? In, in order for it to be sublime, right? If I if I raise you up to a height, right? You you look down and see things that you didn't see before, right? Here I'm just kind of raising you up to a height so I can just drop you, and that's the postmodern approach, right? I've raised you up to a height, and then I'm gonna let your stomach fall, and we're gonna you know whatever roller coaster or Six Flags adventure thing that you're doing, yeah. But at the same time, I would say that, um, you know, what, how can the postmodern be the friend of a postmodern Christian, right? Is that very element is that looking and seeing what they're doing, like is actually really cool sometimes because it's breaking down this facade that we've been dealing with for a few hundred years of the enlightenment and modernism. Right. And then what we're doing is what we can do then is kind of like sit there and wait for the pieces to fall because postmodernism is not going to lead you to anything, right? It's, it's leading you to this own construction of meaning that you're like, Oh no, 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 that's okay. We're going to let the postmodern break everything down. And then we're as, as Christians, as Catholics, we're going to come around and we're going to present you with something that is similar, but like, gosh, a, a world of difference. Is that kind of like, like I always enjoyed reading the existentialists, like, like uh, you know, the French ones, like, Mm-hmm. And Sartre, but you know, like, uh, like a lot of people are, are pretty against them because they, you know, like they don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can read them, right? Well, but like, enjoy them. I mean, it's the, I mean, it seems like that's kind of like, the, it's almost like they, it would be good to read them in the in the context of like. <laughs> Pick well, up some of those ideas and then take it. And it's not just the it's not it's not just the ideas. It's it's the style too, right? And picking up on these sorts of things, right? I think that that's that's great. Yeah, I think you can again like don't be afraid to be like Moses and to steal the gold from Egypt, right? Well, where do you draw the line then? Because like obviously, I mean, there is a line of like you, you don't want to like pollute your. Um, like you don't want to just be searching the crass and like just for crass's sake or whatnot. <laughs> I don't know. Like, why are we doing this for crass sake? <laughs> well, okay. A, a good example is I I got into an argument one time because I love the show Fargo and I also love like the original. Movie. Uh, what you doing with that wood chipper? You know, like, yeah, exactly. Which is like, and it's like, like you know, like it, nothing about that is very noble. It's just like this like really dark, gritty like. There's just some really disgusting stuff, and like, so what's the value? But, well, okay, with the Cullen brothers and these sorts of films, I would say it's more like Flannery O'Connor, right? Yeah. That like, what's meant in some of these things is to like, um, to to cut you awake, right? To to um, to fill you with that, right? And there's a danger there, right? That like, when when that when that cut is made in in your mind in your soul, right? Um, does it does it wake you up out of the the, the, the torpor that you're stuck in of like, you know, all men by nature desire to know. And yet all the other desires that we have and bodily desires are clouding that. Right. And so it's very hard for us to turn our mind to spiritual matters, much less to God. Right. And so, um, a, a thing like Fargo, which shows in the end, like a complete dissatisfaction with like earthly goods. Yeah. Right. That could be the start of something great. It could be also the start of something really awful because. So how do you what ensure do you get? that it's good? Like, I mean, because if, you, if you're, I mean, if it, like, it's almost like if it's just 50 50, you might want to stay away from that. Or, like, in, in case it, you know, you, it doesn't, it turns you to something bad, you know? Like, 
Like, I mean, like, yeah, court, court you, trial proceedings yeah. are reading the transcript. And they, well, I read his book and that's why I did it. Um, yeah, you don't want to end up that way. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have a good answer for you right now on that one. I think, um, obviously, in terms of like, how are you actually going to achieve um, real sublimity as opposed to absurdity? Right. So a lot of what postmodern is that shocks is not actually sublimity. It's just absurdity. Right. So it's what uh, Longinus would classify as with purility. Right. So like doing like middle school type things. Right. Like taking Hemingway and inserting a bunch of clickbait ads into it and calling it art. Right. That that's not right. Um, what you want to imitate. But there are other like postmodern authors who do some really interesting genre bending things. Um, that you could learn from. And um, it's not like you have to you know, make yourself an ostrich and put, put your head in the hole, right? Um, at the same time, I would say, um, trust the process, right? If you want to be sublime, the, the five-step process that Longinus has also has you cultivating like your reason, your intellect, your moral life in order to make yourself stronger, right? In terms of your thoughts and in terms of your passions, so I, I would trust the process then that like, again, like with anything, like test it, right? So is that person going to mass more? Are they reading more about their faith? Are they praying more, right? Are they going more to confession because of what, and that's for yourself on that process, right? Is the art doing that, right? That is, is this art something that's uh, helping people in terms of what we would call historically the dark night of the soul and Christian mysticism? Right? Is it, is it helping them to see past the transient things of this world? And, and, and or, right, are, are you just dimming the lights for everyone? Um, sometimes we dim the lights, right? So like here, Washington, D.C., right? Um, you turn out all the street lights, you turn out all the lights, and what are you going to see for the first time? The yeah. stars, right? I took some students this fall break over out to um, the Badlands in, in South Dakota. Man, that is fantastic, right? That is absolutely fantastic, right? Um, and I have to turn off other lights in order to see those lights. But those lights are infinitely more beautiful, right? It's, it's me who's limited here in my place on Earth who can't really perceive that. And I fill my, my world with a thousand other things that cloud my vision from seeing the eternal beauty that God has given me, right? And the light that he's given me. We did this rosary out under the stars, and we had no lights. We were miles away from the road and we could see everything perfectly because God had provided the light, right? So the question then becomes is, is the art dimming the lights in the modern world, right? Going to point to the stars, right? Or do you have them trapped in a room that they can't escape? And so if I turn off all the lights, then they're just left in the dark.